As the Vincast approaches episode 50, now is a perfect time to help the podcast grow. And you can do this in a number of different ways. Um, a great way is to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, for example, or there are other ways, Stitcher, Play FM. Uh, and when you do subscribe, uh, if you're a fan of the podcast, it would be great if you could rate uh, five stars, ideally, uh, and also write a, a great review um, because it does help um, get the podcast uh, onto uh, a lot of people's radars. Uh, recently had a great review from Mitchell Harris at Fantastic Winery uh, in Country Victoria uh, who said that... Uh, uh, those of us who love a good wine have been after an Aussie podcast like this for a long time. So it is, uh, fantastic. Thank you so much for those kind words. Uh, of course, you can follow me on uh, Instagram and Twitter at Intrepid Wino and the podcast as well on, uh, at the Vincast uh, and come to the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino. Now, for episode 50, as I might have mentioned a few times, uh, my plan is to uh, actually via Skype uh, record uh, listeners um, and having a chat about their impressions of the podcast, their experience with wine. Um, any kind of story would be fantastic. So if you are interested in being a part of that, I really would love to hear from you. So you can hit me up on any of those uh, social media platforms I mentioned or even send me uh, an email, thevincast at gmail.com. Hello there, Vincasters, and welcome back to another episode of The Vincast. My name is James Scarsbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino, and we have had another bit of a break. Uh, I do apologize, guys, for not having any episodes to go up. Over the past few weeks, uh, as I might have mentioned, I was overseas attending the Pro Wine and Vinitaly trade fairs, which was uh, fantastic. Uh, lots of great wine, lots of great food, and also got to catch up with um, some fantastic wine people. Uh, and then with Easter, uh, it was a little bit complicated to have a guest on the podcast. So uh, I thought when I do come back, I will come back with a bit of a bang. And so I've got a really exciting guest who uh, has a little bit of a different background to anyone I've had on before, but uh, is uh, doing something really exciting, something that has really got the attention of a lot of people in the industry and hopefully um, – people who are just wine lovers as well. Nathan Earle uh, is, uh, has worked in television in Australia for um, at least 10 years and um, probably worked very closely with The, the Chaser, for those who aren't familiar with them, a uh, very cult show on the ABC back in the day. And um, he has created a, a show called Plonk, um, which is a very irreverent look at the wine industry and with the lifestyle wine programs. Uh, so I had a chat with him um, as he uh, is editing a second series of Plonk uh, and it was really fascinating. So I hope you enjoy and see you on the other side. Nathan, thank you so much for uh, making some time and joining me on the uh, the Vincast. Obviously, you are uh, knee deep in uh, in editing the the second series of uh, Plonk, so I really appreciate you making some time. Oh, thanks for the invite, James. Uh, great to be here. Uh, so, tell me, Nathan, um, what was the sort of the first interaction you had with wine that made you kind of prick up your ears and kind of think, oh, is this, there's something a bit more to this? Well, I sort of grew up uh, in the Hunter Valley in a wine family. My Dad had been running cellar doors up there since the late 70s. But, uh-huh. um, so I was sort of raised on a steady diet of Semillon and Shiraz from an early age. 
But I'd say sort of my first real interaction with wine was probably sitting in the car park of the Cessnock KFC drinking a tooth, you know, like a 1998 Saddler's Creek bluegrass a Cab Sav out of a plastic cup with a Tower Burger combo. That's kind <laughs> of a, that's a bit of a sideways kind of moment, isn't it? <laughs> it, it absolutely is. You know, you grew up in that area, you work in that area, and I, I, I was working at a restaurant uh, up in the valley, and so we used to get access to quite a lot of decent wine, but you could only really drink it you know, between the hours of sort of 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. when you finished work. So we would often, we would be often devouring these amazing bottles of uh, of white and red wine, you know, out of styrofoam cups at the local park or the local takeaway joint. Mm. And and so you, was wine a part of uh, your family growing up? Like were your parents, you know, obviously um, coming from the Hunter Valley, the, obviously accessibility to, to wine would have been uh, pretty easy. It was to a degree, you know, it was always around the house. Um, you know, Dad, uh, my first memory of my father was going and visiting him at the old Hungerford Hill cellar door up in the Hunter Valley and running around there as kids, uh, you know, through the wine barrels and through the cellar door. And so so wine was always sort of part of the family. Um, I wouldn't say we were sort of entrenched in the industry out there because there's sort of a there is a difference between sort of you know being a winemaker and doing what my dad did, which was sort of running the cellar door and being sort of a marketer or a salesman of wine. But um, but it was it was certainly around. And when you know when I became old enough to sort of drink, you know we were sort of introduced to wine, you know, over the dinner table in a sort of fairly conventional way and then you know you know as you go in through the teenage years you're constantly running under the house and stealing a bottle of dad's red wine to take camping uh with you and you know consequently i i then worked at in cellar doors you know throughout my university days and my brother now runs a cellar door and my mother works in a cellar door so yeah it's it, it, we're definitely a wine family yeah and and i guess sort of early on that that's where that kind of wine communication and and trying to find ways to to make wine accessible uh, accessible to um visitors to a cellar door would have would have come pretty early on oh indeed and i think you know anybody that's worked in a cellar door you know in any capacity knows that that's what it's all about you know you know you can get people to the region and they want to buy wine and a lot of people know or don't know what they're looking for but unless you make the experience engaging you know, they're not going to part with their hard-earned dollars for a case of wine, uh, particularly, you know, when a case of wine can run up to, you know, $350, $400. So, and particularly with the Hunter Valley, I mean, there's a lot of cellar doors up there. That's a lot of choice. And you really need to capture someone's imagination early on because after they've tasted, you know, they've gone to three, four or five, heaven forbid, uh, cellar doors in a day, you know, their palate's shot and they they really just want to get back to the bar or back onto the golf course. So, so how do you make that experience engaging for people? How do you engage people straight away? And how do you make? And I, and I genuinely feel that you are more inclined to buy wine off people who for, for whom you've had a good experience with. You know, obviously the wine and the quality of the wine helps, but you know the experience you have during the tasting and the affinity that you may have with the person who's selling it to you that will always get you over the line and i noticed that at cellador time and time again and, and the same could be said you know for for wine television programming as well unless you can reach out and find an, an engaging reason why the audience should care about the product you're selling them you know there's just too much other choice out there for people to to engage with absolutely 
Uh, so you mentioned that yeah, you, you started working in cellar doors whilst you were studying. What did you end up studying at university? I did, um, I did a communications degree, which, which in the late 90s was a degree you do when you couldn't think of any other degree to do. Yeah, I think uh, in the mid, mid, <laughs> mid to late 2000s, um, psychology became that. Oh great! <laughs> so 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 I I, I have a uh, a relatively redundant communications degree from the University of New South Wales, uh, but it wasn't until I went back and and studied again as an older person, you know, in my mid twenties, uh, when I did a master's degree in television producing at the Australian Film Television and Radio School in Sydney that I sort of really sort of became engaged with a potential career. I think you know going I go I went to university at seventeen and I think. It's more about just giving yourself another couple of years of tap dancing where you don't have to be too grown up at that stage. But yeah. by the time I by the time I made it to afters, and that was a, a, a difficult school to even get into. You know, I was twenty five years old, and I I you know done a lot of travelling, and I was ready to sort of try to find a career that I could focus on, and um, it ended up being television. But it, but of course, my heart was always in the wine industry. Yeah, understandably. Um, so what, what, what were you doing sort of in that interim between finishing the, the, the bachelor's uh, degree and then kind of finding, you know, that television was uh, a career that you might want to pursue? Just, I mean, it was a bit of a lost period. <laughs> It's a little bit of a lost period for me, to be honest. You know, working sort of, you know, lost lots of hospitality work, you know, bars and um, restaurants. And um, I went over to Canada for a couple of years and worked in golf resorts over there. And um, Are you, you're a golfer. I, I'm an I'm an appalling golfer. Yeah, yeah. I've got a slice that's so bad it can actually whip around 180 degrees and hit me in the back of the head. So, um, but but you know, I think that. It was important for me to have that period of time where I, I was a little lost and I did a bit of travelling and I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do and I eventually found my way back to the Hunter Valley, you know, and back into Cellar Door and it wasn't sort of till I came home and got back into the wine industry that I, it helped me sort of cement. I don't want to say by going back to the wine industry I realised I didn't want to work in the wine industry. That's not true but it helped me sort of focus down on um, – you know, a, a potential career that I could have that I was hopefully good at and, um, you know, the opportunity sort of flowed after that. But you had um, an interest in television. Was that something that had been with you for a while? Did you did you have a particular love of television growing to, up? To a degree. I always remember sort of acting in plays at, at um, high school and, you know, being right into, you know, Monty Python and Blackadder and, uh, <laughs> you know, Faulty Towers and, and, yes, Prime Minister and all that stuff. So I always had a sort of a passion for that sort of thing and then sort of went, even at university would, you know, script edit for a lot of people and make short films and things. But it didn't really occur to me that, that I even had that option. Yeah. You know, I think growing up, you know, in the Hunter Valley and, and the time you did, it just because you wanted to get into television doesn't mean you could be in television. I mean, if you wanted to go into mining or hairdressing, you know, it's a fantastic place because the opportunities there, you know, are, are brilliant. But if you wanted to get into television, there's no there's no clear way of doing it. It's not like, um, you, you know, it, and it, so much of it is luck and timing as well, you know. And you would think people would just assume that, you know, oh, 
I'm talented, surely someone will recognise my talent and just put me on television. Yeah, and I didn't really have any aspirations of being on screen either. My passion was always sort of behind the camera, directing and writing and producing. And and so there wasn't just a clear path. It's, you know, you sort of, most people who get into television stumble into it by accident backwards when they're not even paying attention. And that was certainly the case for me. It took me a long time to to find TV. But once I was in there, I was really focused. And the first job I got out of film school was producing The Chasers War on Everything, which at the time was a show that was sort of buried on Friday nights at like 10 past 10 or something. Something happened in that year between sort of 2006, 2007, where The Chaser, although they had been on television for yeah, years prior I, I, to that. I was familiar with them uh, from CNN and how many ends was it? I, can't I think remember. it was four ends. But um, so, I, so I was aware of them, but I, I actually started watching Chasers War and Everything right from the beginning and, mm. and, and I remember that kind of, explosion after that first year um just going yeah. wow and, and i think that's true i think cnn and n was certainly a show you know that had a lot of love within the industry or it was popular amongst university students or sort of people who had a passion for political satire but mm. it was really the war on everything that that series those three seasons that sort of broke chaser sort of into the mainstream in many respects and I think, you know, it was certainly at a time too where people still actively sought out and purchased DVDs. And there was something that happened over the break between 2006, 2007, where the DVDs just sold uh, a bucket load and people sort of rediscovered the series on repeats and catch up. And um, so when we came back to do the second series in 2007, our, our audience had just sort of quadrupled in size. And we we really were, for, for a period of time, in my opinion anyway, the, the, the show to watch, you know, during the week, you know. And I remember that, it got to a point, I remember seeing sort of um, stuff in the media or mainstream media about people, particularly obviously in Sydney where most of it was being filmed, um, sort of going, oh, you're doing a prank, are you? you know, yeah, absolutely. Coming up and, and, and like expecting it. So I remember it kind of, it became a lot harder to do, to do it them. It did, it did. And in a weird way, that was sort of the program's ultimate downfall. And, you know, once everyone had sort of saw the guys coming, you know, the jokes lost a bit of power because you weren't really playing a pure prank on people. There was a, there was a level of knowingness that the, the target was aware of. And in many ways that was so, particularly with the politicians. I used to, um, I used to do a lot of the stuff in Canberra. And, you know, we noticed after a year or two, the politicians just started playing our game, really. We, you know, their strategy was to neutralize the, the gag by playing along. Whereas in those to early. To be laughing years, right away before that even exactly, said Exactly, exactly. Because that's not funny then. I'm you good at catch ha, 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 I can take a joke. And I think in those early days, the, you know, what the, the guys had going for them is anonymity. You know, no one really knew who they were or what they were up to. And so the, the, the gags were that much more awkward. Um, because you watch these politicians or big businessmen or CEOs sort of squirm at the idea that they didn't actually understand the offer that was being presented to them. And then obviously as the years went on, you know, and the, the, the brand grew and grew and the guys became much more well-known, you know, it, it did make achieving those stunts harder and harder and we just had to, you know, either go further afield or make them bigger or more ambitious, you know, and to, you know, to mix success, I think. 
So uh, were you involved in a number of different elements with, with uh, the chaser? I sort of, yeah, I was to a degree. I mean, the, the majority of what I did was, was directing and producing. So we, there was a group of sort of two and sometimes three of us, producer directors, and we would be divvied up the various scripts that were coming up, you know, sort of down the pipeline. And then it was our job to, to turn those scripts into a reality, to assess the, the viability of what could be achieved and to, to physically work out how to do them, how to capture them, how to film them, how to sort of dial them up and make them funny. And I certainly, particularly in the early years, got lumped with all of the stunts. You know, I didn't get the luxury of going to the studio and filming the, the really funny sort of sketches that the guys used to write. I was more often than not. I was a big fan of their music parodies. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, they, they were fantastic. But more often than not, I was sitting, you know, parked in a van in a stakeout trying to get Gretel Colleen as she <laughs> exited the building or, you know, hiding in a stairwell at some political meeting trying to jump out and stunt John Howard. John Howard, I, I met John Howard so many times on that show, chasing him with a Back to the Future DeLorean or shopping cart. Or- oh, I remember that one. That was really funny. Yeah, yeah. So, so I didn't get it. I, 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 they kept me away from the studio. I was always out in the field or down in Canberra, you know, getting hassled by the federal police. <laughs> but it's uh, you know a, a lot of on location and trying, you know, trying to find the right way of shooting something. I guess. I guess it would probably be a bit different because yeah, it's all very on the fly. You know, you uh, it was fantastic really training. <laughs> yeah, it was brilliant training, and those guys. Their work ethic was so un- incredible that it made everybody around them work twice as hard as they would normally. And what people forget sometimes is we were filming essentially 35 to 40 minutes of television every four or five days. Sure. You know, and that's a huge amount of TV to, to pull together at a short time. And so I think those years on The Chaser certainly gave me a great deal of experience in sort of just working out how to make it happen on the fly, run and gun, turn it around, not overthinking it too much, but also being able to adapt to problems that happen in the field. I mean, the Apex stunt is a classic example of something that was planned meticulously and then as soon as we did it, it totally went pear-shaped. And so we just had to adapt on the fly and work out, well, how do we still make this funny? How do we still execute the joke we want to execute? Um you know, to to varying degrees of success, I guess. There were, at that that time was sort of a, a bit of a cultural zeitgeist as far as Australian comedy, I think, because that was around about when Chris Lilly was starting to come onto the scene as well. And so there was there was there seemed to be this real energy behind local content as far as particularly in terms of comedy, which kind of I felt like it after after the chase had finished, it, it sort of it went off the rails a little bit. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. I think it was a really interesting time at the ABC um, in those mid-noughties. I always look forward to Wednesday night on ABC. It was just the best, like two hours, I think it was, Mm. of really awesome content. Well, I think ABC was buoyed off the success of Kath and Kim. You know, they developed this great spin-off series, which did really well, and then all of a sudden you started seeing Double the Fist and The Chaser and The Gruen Transfer, Summer Heights High and, and We Can Be Heroes, obviously. And so there was a real swagger and confidence around the ABC at that time that they were, they were, they were sort of creating innovative new programming, um, you know, and then the, the, as all these things do, they ebb and flow depending on your sort of taste. And, you know, perhaps, you know, post the war and everything, there, there may 
have been a, um, perhaps a more um, safe type of programming being made at the ABC. Um, but, you know, now, you know, now that ABC2 clearly is up and running too, though I think the last year they've... they've makes a big difference. Really like, I, I know the way, like something that comedians always say is that a big difference um, as far as um, content being created, whether it's, you know, stand-up comedy or whether it's um, televised um, comedy shows, uh, it depends on, you know, what, what side of um, politics is in power. And I think that because it was um, John Howard in government and then, you know, the left-ish came into power, there was kind of like a, oh, yeah. and now, you know, in the last few years with Tony Abbott, all of a sudden comedy's kind of come back into the fore again. I mean, that could be true. I mean, I think um, I think it's always easier when comedically, particularly if you're making a show that has sort of social or political elements to it it's always more easy if you have a great antagonist you know yeah. and tony abbott is a great antagonist john howard was a great antagonist but i think you know buffoonery and political um mischievous you know is is prevalent in both parties and i think you know kevin rudd was a great um antagonist as well to some degree um, but I think what changes the political, uh, excuse me, the comedic landscape, the ABC more, is just who's in charge and who's willing to take risks. Sure. You know, it's very easy to recommission Chris Lilly show after Chris Lilly show. But the first person to commission a Chris Lilly show, you know, that had real guts. You know what I mean? You, yeah, you know, and so it's about being willing to fail. And it's about being willing to commission 10 comedy shows for like, you know, just to pull a number out of the air and know that six of them won't connect with an audience. But to, to find the four that do, you need to make the 10. And when you're just recommissioning programming from the same faces doing the same type of programming, although those faces may be great and that programming might be great, it doesn't necessarily make for the most interesting pool with which to find and develop new talent. Mm. And definitely, you know, programs like the, the Fresh Blood um, uh, campaign, which ABC2 really got behind in the last year or so, you know, that's digging up sort of the next generation of, of comedians. But I think, um, you know, it does take you know, real drive and guts at the top to sort of say, no, no, we're going to, we don't, you know, let's just not make the safe bet this year. Let's actually give all, all the people that usually get their shows up a year off and let's just commission eight new shows from these people and hope that we find the next Chaser and the next Sean McAuliffe uh, because, you know, they're out there and if we don't provide them with any opportunities, they'll just go into, you know, advertising thing. <laughs> I think probably one of the really interesting things about what's happened certainly the last three or four years is with um, the online space being so much more um, visible to an audience and it's what, what appears to be much easier to kind of generate some content, you know, in a very lo-fi way and build an audience that can then very easily be adapted into a a more mainstream media format, um, mm. you know, that the, like the, the, the birth of YouTube, I guess, and the growth of YouTube and the legitimacy of it has, for example, changed the whole landscape of, um, of, of media. And, you know, people are watching um, media on so many different devices and different platforms now that it, it's sort of, 
Do you feel like there is a, a huge democratization of, uh, of of media? Oh, absolutely. I think, and I think democratization is a great word because, right? You know, getting down to brass tacks, it does it does democratize the media, but it also democratizes success and talent and opportunity. In the end of the day, you, you don't need to rely on a sort of antiquated rating system or nepotism to get your show up. The numbers speak for themselves. The reach speaks for themselves. Um, and there's nowhere to hide. You know, a, a great show potentially will find a, a wide audience and then it also allows for a lot of programming that may have never seen the light of day to just get out there and have a go. I mean, we certainly, I, I, I show ran a, a web series called The Great Crusade a few years ago, which was sort of a partnership between Qantas and Tourism New Zealand. But um, we made it into this 21-part comedy series about this squash journalist who was travelling around New Zealand trying to um, trying to cover the Rugby World Cup. Um, and we had a tremendous amount of creative control and freedom on that show and it allowed us to make that many episodes. We were essentially turning an episode around a day in terms wow. of writing it and shooting it, cutting it and uploading it, all while travelling on the road around New Zealand following the, rock, the Wallabies around. And I think if, if we'd had to go through the normal processes of getting scripts approved and rough cuts approved and fine cuts approved and signing off with the client and the agency and the network, it just never would have been done. We would have made four episodes instead of 21. Mm. And, and quite more often than not, when you get that much feedback that you're contractually obliged to adhere to, it waters the content down to a point where it actually appeals to nobody because everybody has a different opinion on what joke's funny and more often than not they'll take the safe road. And so it, 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 it smooths the sharp edges off the comedy and you stop making a show. And I, I think this is the other thing too. The word niche is not a dirty word. You look at you know, great comedy shows like Eastbound and Down or Portlandia, you know, they're not trying to be the next Big Bang Theory, you know, or they know they're a niche program and they're talking to their audience and they're unapologetic about that. And the audience in turn rewards them with loyalty, you know, with with great uh, word of mouth, Um and I think that's where, you know, hopefully Australian comedy will head, you know, as more avenues for distribution become available, whether it be through YouTube or through Vimeo, you know, Amazon and, and um, Yahoo are obviously in that space now, you know, and then now the birth of the sort of streaming service, whether it be Netflix or Stan or Presto, are all getting into that space as well. But you still need money to make programming and finding that money and cobbling that money together is not going to become easier. In fact, it's going to become harder because you've got more people at the trough trying to fight for the same amount of dollars. But what it does force people to do is think um, a little bit more frugally about how to make programming and make sure every dollar they find or, or raise is put on the screen. Oh, I've always found that like shows that I love particularly early on were just so great because they had to be so much more creative, particularly in terms of their storytelling and, and, and character development that when they got a big following and then their budgets went up, mm. something then kind of went missing. They went for more spectacle and, and rather than, you know, the, the real the more organic kind of oh, way they were, they, were, they were trying to communicate with their audience. Well, you don't need to put lipstick on that pig then, do you? I mean, look at Faulty Towers. Like that, that show still endures 
you know, 30-odd years later. And there was made on the smell of an oily rag. You can see the sets falling apart during the shoot. Star Trek. You know, Star Trek. You know, but once you capture the sort of zeitgeist of the audience you're talking to and you know the tone of the show and you're not trying to be a show for everybody, it will endure because it's handed down. You know, when I was at high school, you know, I had great drama teachers that said, oh, you should check out, you know, they gave me a VHS of Blackadder and I was hooked. You know, or some old Monty Python records, you know. And so, you know, uh, it's passed down from generation to generation, great comedy, much like The Goon Show was, you know, in its day. Uh, you know, and I'm sure we'll pass down our generation, what we think was the great comedies of our generation to, you know, our kids. One of the big ones for me when I was young was The Goodies. And, and, and I, I'll happily go, <laughs> I happily go back and watch episodes of the goodies now and then go, yeah, you know, it, it's sort of dated to that period of the, of the 70s. It's not like Monty Python where mm. um, like on Flying Circus or, or their movies, you know, there's a lot of period type stuff, you know, and, and, you know, a lot of time they're sort of wearing suits and stuff like that, whereas you look at some of the stuff that, that Bill Oddie was wearing <laughs> on the goodies and go, oh, my God. But... At the same time, the comedy of it, the the, the genius, is still very timeless. Oh, um, indeed, because it's great slapstick comedy. You you totally appeal. You know, you gravitate to those characters. They're 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 wonderful buffoons. You know, I mean, there's elements of the goodies in Plonk to a degree. You know, and the goodies is it's a fantastic time capsule. You know, I love the goodies. I love how kitsch it sort of has become now you know i love that it feels dated it's, i love it's yeah, fantastic. Like, it's kind of almost hipster wearing a goodies t-shirt oh in, yeah exactly <laughs> exactly and and it's it's a wonderful historical document for looking about looking back at you know the sexual politics of its time the fashion you know the 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 landscape you know what people were watching what people were laughing all, at all, all the apartheid episodes set in south africa Exactly, exactly. And, and, you know, they're, they're unbelievably racist by today's standards. But, mm. but in the context, it's a, it's a fascinating historical document and still sort of funny and enjoyable in many ways. Now, you can never eat a black pudding again, can you, if you've seen an, an episode of The Good Not without saying Ecky Thump. Indeed, indeed. And, you, you know, and I think, um, you know, you, we, there is a tendency to sort of historically revise a lot of great comedies, and you know, and I think the idea is just looking at them in the context of their time. In the same way, a great album, a great music, a piece of music, mm. you know, you've got to look back at the the, the politics of the of its day to understand the lyrics of of bands from the sixties and seventies and eighties. Mm. So after um, after the Chaser, you continued to work in various capacities in the television industry. Were, did you still sort of have much contact with the, the Chaser guys at all? Yeah, I did, actually. I, I, I've sort of worked with those guys on and off for the best part of 10 years now in some capacities. You know, I did a, a, a two-series of a show with Lawrence Lung, the comedian Lawrence Lung. You know, that that was um, co-produced with the Chaser Broadcasting. You know, I, you know um, obviously choose your, Chris... Choose your, own, choose your Own Adventure? Choose Your Own Adventure, yeah, and unbelievable. I yeah, know, I, I yeah. missed that one. I think that was when I was overseas. Yeah, so, you know, I've always worked, you know, and obviously I've just done um, a couple of years with those guys on a show called The Checkout um, yes. on the ABC as well. So, you know, we've all remained friends and we work together in various capacities. You know, I did um, 
I, I did the first series of Balls of Steel with Craig Rewcastle and he was just in a another little pilot we shot a few months ago and Andrew Hansen has always popped up in some of my shows and he'll pop up again in um, series two of Blanc. So, yeah, no, we're, we're great friends and, um, you know, they're a wonderfully collaborative, creative group of guys that have gone on from strength to strength and they're diversifying their brand as well, you know, through the Giant Dwarf brand. They've got an amazing theatre, Giant Dwarf Theatre down here in Sydney where they put on you know, incredible um, events every night, whether they be spoken word events or comedy shows or um, literature Q and A sessions. So, mm. um, yeah, no, they're a good they're a good bunch of people. But um, it was sort of time to, to try uh, my hand at my own show just to see if I could do it. Yeah, so you tell know. me, tell me um, how you came up with the concept of Plonk. Well, it, it sort of had a long gestation period. To be honest, it it sort of goes back to film school 2005 i i'd um i'd met josh tyler who, who obviously plays josh in the show at film school he was doing a writing degree and i was doing a producing degree and he grew up in the bros i grew up in the hunter valley so we would um quite regularly um buy a bunch of clean skins and get pissed uh and chat about what was right and what was wrong with the television industry but we, i always had grand dreams of making a very serious wine show um, but I knew I wanted it to be a little bit, you know, Jamie Oliver was big at the time, that pucker tucker, more relaxed attitude. And I, I couldn't understand why we couldn't take that sort of Jamie Oliver it's approach sort of a, to wine. a boyish, sexy style of uh, Yeah, you know, of instead show. of interviewing the, the chef about his wine in the restaurant, why aren't you sitting out in the back of the loading dock onto milk crates, you know, drinking the wine from the wine? You know, I just wanted to sort of um, humanise wine shows a little bit and then it just sort of fell by the wayside and everyone got busy and then you know nine years later <laughs> uh you know I decided to you know dig it out of the drawer again I was working on a show a television show down in Melbourne which I ended up leaving prematurely um actually I was I was fired from that show so I, I ended up having six weeks off quote unquote so I came home. I went back to the Hunter Valley and hung out with my dad and sort of refound my love for that industry and then refound my love for that idea. What's wine? You know, there are some great wine shows out there, some, some horrible wine shows out there, but I just thought there's, there's got to be another way of doing it, another way of reaching out to the types of people who I used to see come into the cellar door every day. And winemakers themselves have a fantastic sense of humour. Yeah, like that's what I was going to say. Like there's some real characters. And, and I know that within the industry, like we always talk about that, um, you know, and there's sort of legendary stories about groups of winemakers going to the US and the Americans going, oh, my God, these guys are so much fun to be around. And you sort of – you don't you don't see that being translated to the the wider public. You know, you mm. go to wineries websites and, and and they're very lovely. They're trying to evoke an emotion, um, but at the same time, sort of keep the sort of I don't know, not not, not quite the prestige, but the, the mm. premium nature, and not for it to be sort of as as larrikin um, and kind of uh, you know. Just fun kind of thing. Mm. And I understand. I understand why they do that too. I understand why a lot of wine marketing is sanitized to a way because you're dealing with a, a premium product in most respects, an aspirational product in many respects. But I think as the sort of cultural shift has occurred and wine has become the sort of dominant alcoholic drink of choice for Australians over beer, you know, that level of aspiration has changed and it becomes more about a place and a drink, 
you get together with mates and you go up to Jazz in the Vines or you go to a Moonlight Cinema or you, you know, you get together. End of last year, I went up to Mitchelton and saw Jimmy Barnes with my dad. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And so it becomes less about this aspirational product that you, you is only accessible to someone who, you know, wears a lot of Paisley, uh, you know, and drives a Lexus and plays golf. Um, but, it, but it becomes more about the people you're with, the food you're, you're eating, the music you're listening to, the, the locations you're going to. Um, and I think, you know, as the consume, the way we consume wine has changed, I think so too should be the, the way in which we present wine. And I absolutely agree that there is a place for that slightly more elitist type of wine programming because there is, you know, a, a slightly elitist consumer out there. But, but there is also a consumer who's me and my mates and everyone I know who just wants to get together and go up to Mudgy for the weekend or, you know, down to the Mornington and just have a great time, whether it be wrapped around an event or not. And they're passionate about learning about wine. You know? I, I, think, I think that has a lot to do with the, like, a generational thing and I really think that it's, it, it's accessibility in terms of people having accessible uh, access to be able to go to wine wine regions now you know there's so many more wineries with cellar doors um wine tourism is a much bigger thing than it was in the past but with the the accessibility to information as far as you know websites and stuff like that um you know people under the age of maybe 40 ish are much more in contact and 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 with with winemakers with wine mm. regions and 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 the reality of that and so i think that sort of broken down barriers a lot and so people don't have that kind of us and them mentality i agree i think they've humanized the wine industry a lot in the last decade and i think just in the same way that wearing the top garish um uh, clothing labels has become out of fashion it's more now about obscure cool clothing that no one knows where you got. I think wine's the same way. You know, you don't need to be just a member of, you know, Penfolds and, uh, you know, those other big wine companies anymore. It's more fun to go out and find some awesome niche little winery in the Adelaide Hills or McLaren Vale and then tell your mates about it because they know, they've got no idea. They've never seen that varietal before. They've never heard of that winery before. And so then there becomes a really interesting um, exclusivity about it. It's It's more about... You know, the same with television. The same way, exactly. I was going to. I was just thinking the same thing. It's with, niche. You know, with, when you've got um, so many more networks over in the US, like particularly mm. in terms of cable, and now Netflix generating their own content, even Amazon doing it. Um, with all those little niches, it's almost like you know, I've I've, I've seen people make jokes about. I I actually pretend like I have watched Breaking Bad because I just got so sick of people saying you haven't seen Breaking Bad. What's wrong with you? I think the same <laughs> thing is happening with wine. Yeah, I to I totally agree. It, it, it's it's become quite trendy to know about some obscure little British drama or comedy or or whatever, and to tell your friends about it. Um, as don't opposed know Keen to Peel. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, because you can feel a little superior about that too, that they haven't caught it on Foxtel or whatever. And that's just, I think it's the same with wine too. It's, it, it becomes this great competitive drive amongst a network of friends. Yeah, and, like, and the same thing with venues as well, like bars and restaurants. Like, oh, you don't know that. Re oh, my God. Oh, yeah, yeah. It doesn't even have a sign on the or, door. Or the know? new groovy ingredient like 
you haven't had kale yeah exactly exactly <laughs> and i think i think that's so true i think that's exactly what's happening in the wine i think it's a great thing too because it encourages people to dig a little deeper to search a little harder to spend more quality time with the winemaker um and to become loyal to to you know, a, a broader range of winery, wineries and wine regions from the top down. So, was were all for all those reasons? Is that sort of why you came up with the the the, the concept of Plonk? A little bit. I mean, I just wanted it to be fun. Like i i I knew there was a show about the ridiculousness of the wine region, um, but I knew that the joke couldn't be on the wine industry. Because it's too easy, it's too safe just to pick on the pompos. Like everybody knows that the wine industry has pomposity to it and ridiculous to it, as as any industry does. And it, to me, that just felt out like it was just pointing out the bloody obvious. Whereas if you could wrap it in some sort of self-defamatory way, and for me, it was television because I I understand how to make television. I know the heartache and pain that goes into making television. I know how quickly it can all fall off the rails. So, you, so you're essentially just using the wine industry to cloak um, the, the hidden satire, which is, you know, television making and the absurdity of, partic- you know, lifestyle programming in particular. Um, yeah, and it, it yeah, sort of served both masters then by, by proving to the wine makers that the gag, that they weren't the gag, they were just the facilitators of the gag. It opened all these doors to us and it provided us with, you know, for my money, a much more interesting way of satirising sort of both industries really, but doing it in a really lovable way. You know, a lot of the chaser programming, um, you know, you know, was quite edgy and a bit little dark and a bit cynical. But what I love about Plonk is it wears its heart on its sleeve. It's a very earnest show you know it's the little show that's just trying to make it and i love the sort of naivety of it in a way i think people end up sort of rooting for plonk to to just try to get through the day without stuffing up um and i think it makes it more endearing to watch so you know it's a it's a pretty interesting concept the idea of making a show about a show that i'm guessing doesn't exist (laughs) that's right (laughs) um but sort of what you're talking about, the idea behind the show, I think is it's really successful. You know, you watch each episode and, you know, the start of each episode pretty much is the same where you've got Chris, obviously from um, the Chaser uh, background, um, playing up on his own character, I guess. He's playing a caricature of himself, mm. um, using like having a different kind of lifestyle program style thing, but it's, you know, they're kind of fake outtakes which is hilarious. But then each episode, you know, at least in the first series, as you're going through a number of different regions in New South Wales, um, you are kind of looking at a slightly different element. You know, you've got one episode where Chris kind of gets sick of the pomposity of wine and goes, oh, I'm going to have, a, you know, like that typical sea change thing and get to get touch with, my, you know, the land and and, and ends up making cheese and then kind of goes, oh, this is kind of a bit bullshit, isn't it? And then, you know, another episode where you've got the wine options thing and, and Josh kind of, you know, you've got this character playing a, a wine blogger, which, you know, is very much, you know, a, a, a cultural phenomena of the last five years of wine. 
um, you know, I, I love that way of, of uh, as you say, kind of breaking down barriers, breaking down the image and making things a bit fun. And But at the end of the day, sort of saying, look, it's all just silly. It's all, you know, a, a, you know. It's all bullshit, really. Yeah, and a lot of that tone comes from the wine industry itself. I mean, we, we don't want to live in a glass bubble when we're making this show. This is a show that lives and dies off the back of the embrace of the wine industry. And if the if the people who we are, you know, you know, in no, I was gonna say satirizing, but it's we're actually not satirizing them, we're satirizing ourselves. If the people that are good enough to let us take the Mickey out of them, if they don't get behind the idea and they don't genuinely believe that it's a good thing for the industry, they're not gonna share it. They're not gonna talk about it or tweet about it or put it on their Facebook page and, and encourage people to watch it. And so And you know, he did a good lot- job getting getting uh, Stuart McGill to uh, to make fun of himself that way. Yeah, well, geez, that was a challenge. <laughs> That's quite hard to get Stu. He's a very busy man. He's very hard to keep on track. So we, we were really lucky to get Stu on that. And he's been a great supporter of the show as well. But a lot of the storylines have come directly from the industry themselves or directly from the people involved. Like, But, you know, before we write an episode, um, yes, yes, I, it's hard to believe they are written. But, uh, um, you know, we, we spend a bit of time in the regions. We get to know the winemakers. We find out who might want to play with us and who who doesn't, and then we, we pitch them for ideas. You know, we, we run the ideas past them and, you know, and they might say, oh, look, that doesn't ring true to me, but if you change this, this and this, that that's spot on. And so there's a lot of, um, you know, interplay between, you know, the people who are in the show and, and us to make sure that that the storylines and the set pieces ring true and have, a, have an air of accuracy about them. And that level of collaboration is only going to serve to make the story more honest and, and accessible for people within the industry but also people not in the industry. Well, it's, it's, about, it's forcing us to think outside the square a little bit and not just write from outside. And it's also allowing the storylines for people to relate to them, you know, for, for, for something relatable to have happened to them or... or um, or for them to have a similar storyline, and, th- and that way they can relate to the show, and therefore hopefully relate to the characters. If you don't, if you don't like the characters, or you can't relate to the characters, you're not gonna you're not gonna like the show. Mm. But everybody knows a Chris type, or has worked with a Josh type, or or has a Nathan type in their family, and, and it's familiar with that kind of dynamic of the three of you kind of traveling around, and and you're playing the character, just trying to keep everything. Going yeah, and indeed, sure indeed. and I think you can translate that relationship to any industry, to any to any scenario, you know, to 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 any family to some degrees. There are those archetypes everywhere you look, you know. So we're just wrapping them in the in the pressure bubble of making a wine show that they that they think is going really well, and it's not, um, you know. And hopefully, that's where we squeeze the best comedy out of it. Mm. So the first series is all online. You know, you can find it on YouTube and the links through. There's a Facebook page, and I think I, someone said to me uh, yesterday that they saw it on iView. Uh, it might be. Oh, I don't know. I better check on that. They, they might have been. They might have been misremembering. But um, yeah, yeah. I, where you will be able to see the first series, the, the half hour episodes will will eventually be on Stan in the next couple of months. So you'll be able to see the first series on Stan before we launch the second series on Stan in June. So when you say half hour episodes, because the online ones are 
about 10, 10 minutes or so? Yeah, they're about 10 to 15 minutes each. So the half hours were sort of, you know, once, you know, we were lucky enough for the show to have gotten a run on Channel 10 and Channel 11, what we did is we went back into those webisodes and we retweaked them and stitched them together into sort of three half hours. Oh, okay. Uh, so it's the same sort of content, basically. I mean, you, if you want to watch them now, you should go to a YouTube <laughs> YouTube page, uh, the Plonk YouTube page, and just watch the watch the five webisodes, and then yeah. this, and then six half hour episodes um, will be launched on Stan in June, and then throughout the rest of the year, um, it, it'll be launched on sort of the, the same sort of media platforms as we did last time with a web series coming, you know, and, not long after that. And is that going to incorporate? what you were filming for, I guess, the, the second series in South Australia? Yeah, it's all the South Australian series. So, you know, we go to the Barossa and the Clownvale, Adelaide Hills, Coonawarra, Clare. Um, yeah, it's really fun. So we just we, we shot down there for eight weeks. It was a really massive effort by the team to get it all done. And so I'm currently uh, in post-production on that now, trying to edit it together in some way that makes sense. <laughs> but, but I guess if people kind of want to get a, an idea about some of the stuff they can expect they can you can jump onto uh certainly the instagram account uh, yeah yeah or our facebook. and if you subscribe and like the facebook page and youtube pages you'll get updates of you know when the second series is coming down the pipeline and you know behind the scenes content and things like that and just just join the sort of plonk universe really it's great to sort of have a, a loyal little fan base on our facebook and youtube pages and you know the more people that share that page you know, hopefully the bigger audience will be ready to watch season two when it comes out. And I know that um, for the first series you got um, support from from Tourism New South Wales. Is that is that the that's uh, right? Yeah, and then same sort of th- same sort of thing for the second with uh, South Australia. <laughs> to a degree, yeah. Obviously, it's a bigger show. It's a bigger landscape. We've got more episodes, so we we we, we got some generous support from. Um, South Australian Tourism Commission, uh, but this time round, you know, we our principal sponsor has been Screen Australia, which is fantastic. So oh, wow. it's sort of, sort of so we're sort of now straddling that weird hybrid between a sort of commercial tourism venture uh, and sort of a traditional television funding model through um, Screen Australia. Although they were great, we got um, some funding through a multi-platform drama grant with those guys, which really pushes forward the idea of creating content not just for television but for web as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were lucky enough, to, you know, we were lucky enough for them to have seen the first series of Plonk and how it sort of lived as a web series and a TV show. And so, um, you know, they, were, they generously jumped on board to help um, the Tourism Commission sort of fund the, fund the show. Yeah. And uh, you are also going out on the road um, with uh, Wine Communicators Australia um, with um, some sort of seminar type Oh, stuff, yes, yeah, this is great. I, I'm really excited about it. In fact, that's what I'm meant to be doing today. I'm meant to be writing this bloody lecture. But uh, so, so oh, what are the dates? Hang on. Oh, it's the 20... Okay, so oh, it's the end of... Oh, Jesus, this month. So 21st, 22nd and 23rd of April. Um, the Plonk guys, me, Josh and Chris, will be doing a, a one-hour lecture in Adelaide, Melbourne and Sydney, respectively, for the Wine Communicators of Australia peeps. Uh, and, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a lecture about, you know, the, the birth of Plonk and we'll show some clips and we'll talk about the second series and, um, you know, maybe show a few sneak peek bits and pieces of the second series to the crowd there. And, yeah, it's going to be great. The, the WCA are fantastic people and, you know, it's just a, a good excuse for a bunch of people to get together and talk about the way in which wine is um, 
is communicated in this country, spoken about the, our attitude that the media has to wine and, um, you know, hopefully talking about some different and interesting ways in which we can sort of get the message out there that, you know, yeah, Australia... Uh, you know, I think it's great that they actually are embracing a, a, a different medium uh, with oh, which to, to connect with an audience. Yeah, for years and years, you know, there was the same sort of wine advertising. Very pretty girl, you know, very pretty guy, driving car you can't afford, you know, walking through the vines, rubbing her hands in a linen dress and eating a pulled pork sandwich. Being chased by a, a, a rabbit. Being chased by a rabbit or a <laughs> or whatever. And, look, that, that sort of advertising is fantastic. It looks amazing. It's beautiful. But to me, more often than not, it sort of says go away. This industry is not for you. You could never get a girlfriend this hot. You could never afford this car and therefore you can never, you will never be embraced by this wine. Mm. And, and I think, you know, what Plonk does is it's the antithesis of that, isn't it? It says, no, it's for, it's for everybody. It's, it's fun. Everybody, yeah. It's getting yeah. together with your mates. And it's being not afraid to just say you don't know. I don't and, know. And, and laugh at yourself and, and laugh, laugh at, at the yourself. situation. Because you know, it's fun. It's just fun going out there and trying wine and working out what you like and what you don't like. There's no right or wrong to wine. There just isn't, you know. And, and I, it's funny. I wish I could go back sort of 10 years or so, particularly when I, when I started working in a cellar door in the Yarra Valley mm-hmm. and say to myself, get over it. Do you know what? Like stop kind of just get rid of the pretension just people are just out to have fun just just embrace yeah that. and you see it too you see these people walk in with the james halliday books and they're, they're just buying cases of wine so they could tick it off because someone said that someone said that this is good as opposed to just saying oh actually this is a really lovely wine and my girlfriend really likes this wine and we can drink this with dinner tonight and you know just having a bit more fun with it i think and that, and that is, uh, at the end of the day, I think what, uh, what everyone should be doing more of is just it, having more fun. It means that you're going to buy more wine, you're going to consume more wine, you're going to go, you're going to buy more diverse types of wine from more diverse regions. And we, we're going to build a stronger, more sustainable industry that way because we're going to be reaching out to a huge amount of people out there who desperately want to learn more about wine that don't even know that there's this great wine out there but that only go and buy their wine from you know dan murphy's or coles or well i certainly am looking forward to series three where hopefully you'll be coming uh, through victoria <laughs> we'll try we try we, we, we were talking with victoria way back in the day but they didn't give us too much love so we'll have to hopefully now the show's got a bit of a track record the the door may be slightly more ajar for us <laughs> well, I, I don't doubt it but uh thank you so much nathan for uh for making some time and uh, obviously i'm really looking forward to to uh to seeing some more episodes um uh, and um, hopefully my uh, listeners will jump in as well and Follow you on uh, various social media platforms, but just uh, jump onto YouTube and, and, and watch the episodes, guys. They are hilarious. That's great, mate. Thanks very much for having me. It was a real treat. Cheers. Cheers. And as always, thank you very much, guys, for listening to another episode of The Vincast. I do hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please do let me and uh, Nathan know. Uh, you can obviously follow me on Instagram and Twitter, at Intrepid Wino, and the podcast can be found on Twitter, at The Vincast. You can like my page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino. And as always, come to my website, intrepidwino.com. You'll find all of the previous episodes of the podcast, as well as lots of different writings, and it's very easy to uh, to leave comments and likes on there. Uh, 
You can subscribe to the podcast, as mentioned, on iTunes, Stitcher, or Player FM. Uh, and when you do that, I really would love to uh, to hear from you by uh, giving in a rating and uh, possibly writing a review. Uh, I do look forward to catching up with you on the next episode. But until next time, bye.